This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart. And as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback. And I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cami here. Well, today is an amazing conversation with Michael Adams, the CEO at SAGE, the world's largest and oldest organization dedicated to improving the lives of LGBTQ plus older people. I love this chat and um, gosh, I really feel grateful for Michael's work. And I also want to make a big old announcement, which is that at the end of February, uh, Query will be coming to a close. Making this show has been one of the great gifts of my life. I have met so many people and really feel like I've fulfilled the mission um, that I had to start the show, which is I wanted to create a bank of experiences and voices, people talking in the first person about what it is like to be a queer person, an LGBTQ LGBTQ plus person. And um, boy, did I talk to a lot of people. I mean, just a lot of people. And I also talked to a lot of you. Um, As I've toured, so many of you have come up to me and told me how the show impacted your life, your ability to come out, your ability to find community, no matter where you lived and the age that you were. And I want you to know how much that has meant to me. Uh, So thank you for that. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting the show, um, all the different ways that you have. And especially one shout out to all the Patreon patrons who I have met with on Zoom over a few years now. And I also want to thank um, both my current engineer, Valerie, and also Jordan Duffy, who was a longtime engineer for the show um, and really made it possible. I also huge, huge, huge shout out to Sierra, who has been our producer throughout the show's run. Um, You are the best, Sierra. And for those of you who want to support um, Maximum Fun, please do so. That's our current network. And they did so much to allow us to extend a few more months past my contract at Earwolf to really get a chance to like have some of these great interviews that I wanted to do while wrapping up the show. Do you want to come see me live? Well, I will be in Los Angeles frequently at the Elysian Theater. You can keep in touch with me that way or, you know, on Instagram and stuff. Um, But please enjoy this episode. And again, thank you for all the years of listening. One more thing. (laughs) Do you want to send your final shout out? I'm looking for queeros, favorite episodes, things you've loved, notes you have. I can, what if you gave me like a bunch of changes you wanted? for the podcast, but it's like right at the very end. Anyway, please send all of that to querycast at gmail.com. That's querycast with two E's, Q-U-E-E-R-Y, cast at gmail. Send a voice memo. Let me know. Let the show know um, if it's meant anything to you, what what you've loved about it. And uh, we're going to compile those and that will be our final episode of Query. Please enjoy this episode and can't wait to hear from you. I always have guests start by introducing themselves. Would you introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, My name is Michael Adams, and I'm the chief executive officer at Sage. And can you tell us what Sage is? I I actually have seen you march in like many a parade, but can you tell me what Sage is? 
Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. SAGE is the world's oldest and largest organization that focuses on improving the quality of life for LGBTQ plus older folks. So I got this pitch for to have you on the, the show through, you know, my producer, Sierra. And I was so excited because I think that, um, you know, just as a community, I find this is something we don't talk about enough. Certainly on this show, it has skewed like, um, you know, I'm 42. Maybe sometimes I've talked to somebody who's 52 or whatever. Um, mm. But a lot of folks have been younger, you know, younger mm-hmm. folks my age or now uh, six years into the show, like generations younger. Um, and they're like full adults already with their own lives. So that's its own thing that I have to deal with and get used to. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I feel like, uh, as I said, I've seen you march in like New York city pride, um, and been interested even just to see like, Oh, I didn't know there was an organization that did this sort of support. So maybe you could tell me a little bit about like, when it started, what need it was attempting to fill at that time. And then we could talk more about the work you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. So so Sage was started um, in New York City back in 1978. We've since grown a lot and become a national organization, but we got our start as a local organization here in New York City. And the reason why the organization was started is fundamentally the same reason why we exist today is that, um, you know, l- like any community, we have a large population of older folks, our elders. Um, but ironically, even though elders in our community are our pioneers, they're the folks who uh, pave the way for the, the rights, the progress that we've made today, the equality that we enjoy today to the extent that we that we have a quality. Uh, a lot of our elders really are are aging with a lot of difficulty, um, with a lot of invisibility, lack of support, uh, isolation, facing discrimination, facing neglect, and um, and many of our folks don't have kids, don't have grandkids, you know, weren't parents, and 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 don't have the kind of support structures that older Americans have in general. And so Sage was started back in 1978, recognizing that our elders are our heroes, right? They're our pioneers. They should be they should be aging with all the support they deserve, all the respect they deserve. They should be celebrated as the heroes they are. And we want to make sure that happens. And so fundamentally, that's why Sage was founded and that's why we still exist. Yeah. So that makes I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think part of what I felt curious about is also, you know, 1978 to 2023, even if you're have the same mission, I would imagine that the atmosphere and the kinds of support services that can even be openly offered might be different. Um, Certainly people weren't married in (laughs) 1978, at least not legally. Um, So maybe could you talk to me a little bit about, you know, to your knowledge, what the organization was like, like, where did it, you know, find the folks that it was serving? How openly could those folks talk about their lives? This kind of thing. Yeah. So back in, you know, 1978, which was, I'm terrible at math, but I'm going to say it's 45, 46 years ago. It is because I was born in 1981. So it's, let's see, it's four years older than me. So it's 46. There we go. Yeah, no, it was a, it it was a very different world um, in, in so many respects. There was nowhere near as much space to be, to be open, 
to be, you know, openly queer. And so back then, this, um, you know, the work that Sage did was very much a um, within the community itself. You know, the community, the community itself at that time was really fairly new in New York City. Stonewall had happened less than ten years, less than ten years earlier. And back then, what it looked like was um, volunteers. It was an all-volunteer organization at the beginning. So volunteer social workers and volunteer activists reaching out to older folks that they knew in the LGBTQ plus community who they knew were struggling and, and really starting to build from that small central place of community and like building those circles, um, those circles outward. You know, back then, um, again, it was almost 10 years after Stonewall, there were, you know, the community was becoming more visible. It was a few years after the first, you know, um, uh, pride parades were organized and pride marches were organized here in New York City. So there was some visibility starting to emerge, but but it very much had to be focused within the community itself. Um, you know, there, there was no, nobody out in the world really cared about um, queer old people or cared about queer people, period. At, yeah, at this that, is so interesting. I mean, just the, just the sort of, <laughs> oh man, I mean, that's, it's amazing and it also makes me quite sad because I'm a, you know, if it's just people reaching out to people that they know, which is great, we love that. And it also obviously calls to mind the folks who weren't known to the community Absolutely. and the, and what must have, what, what that experience must have been like. And also, of course, we've always all known each other. So, <laughs> so that makes sense that it's an organization of people that, you know, probably some exes involved, some, uh, some, some folks running into each other on the street and just giving a knowing glance. Um, so that, yeah, it's both, I mean, it's both speaks to our community and then also like has that tinge of like, ah, that is, it's rough to yeah. think about. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, yeah. It's, 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 it, it was a hard time. And at the same time, it was a hard time. And there are a lot of exciting things happening. You know, yeah. we see, um, you know, we have pictures at Sage of, of Sage volunteers uh, with tables at some of the very first back when they were called like, you know, gay liberation um, marches, right. right. In, in New York city right. in the early 1970s. So there's, all of this foment happening, you know, as the community wow. is, you know, is, is, is starting to grow and starting to emerge. And, um, and, and so the organization grew, you know, the organization grew really quickly because it was also a time where, you know, as the years went on, there was a greater and greater emphasis on people coming out of the closet and like naming who we are. And, and the more that that happened and the more visibility was created, then the more, both opportunity and need there was for an organization like Sage to step up and support older folks in uh, in the community. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. 
We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on. You know, something else I'm thinking about, given the 1978 start date, um, is you know, working through the AIDS crisis. And I'm realizing that I don't know much about the AIDS crisis as it impacted older adults. I know we talk a lot about losing a generation of folks who, yeah, folks who died. But I think that when I'm imagining it and like the, you know, the sort of headline is this is like young men at bathhouses, right? Like there's a limitation on thinking about how it might've impacted you know, sex workers or trans women or like the many people that were impacted. But I, I, I don't think I've ever heard people talk about how it might have impacted older adults who were also, I mean, older adults are also sexually active. So, you know, folks who were contracting, you know, HIV AIDS when they already were, you know, into their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, the, the ages that we, where we still have sex, all the <laughs> ages where we still have sex. I'm really, I'm really glad that you're lifting that up because the right the, the story is the story of the beginning of AIDS is all about that we hear about right and that we see portrayed is all about young men um, and of course uh, um, there were many many young men impacted by SAGE young men who died from SAGE I mean from AIDS but there there was a whole group of older people as you're saying who were impacted as well. Um, and part of this is the invisibility of that is because of this deeply embedded ageist notion that older people don't have sex, right? We have this notion so many, so often in society, older people are desexualized. They're not seen as sexual beings. So of course, if we're talking about the common conception of how how, you know, the beginning of AIDS and who was impacted by AIDS, nobody's going to think of old people because, because in this ageist world in which we live, people don't associate sex and old people together. But the fact is, I'll tell you, um, the, I, I see it at Sage all the time. Our folks are really sexually active. Like, you know, we are, you know, we run a network of what in the old days were called senior centers here in New York City. We might be some of the only senior centers that have, um, um, you know, that have bowls of condoms around the centers, but those bowls have to get refilled on, on a regular basis, right? You know, it's yeah. like, it's like, we're talking about uh, a community of older folks who are sexually active, but that's, in again, in this ageist world in which we live, that's often not seen. And that story has been erased, really, from right. the, what AIDS was at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, I'm even thinking about like the times I've, because because again, it's like that message comes through. Um, I'm thinking of like some some very like tantalizing stories where it's like a it's a um, older community living space, and the the like headline where it's like because you know, men die at an earlier age. There's like a, there's like a gonorrhea outbreak or like an, an STI mm-hmm. outbreak where it touches like a bunch of the women because we realize that like there's one guy that's yeah. like sleeping with everybody. And I feel like that story sometimes comes through as a sort of like shocking tale. Um, but outside of that, in terms of like, you know, healthy sexuality or people dating or people sleeping together that aren't dating, I'm certainly... Um, I certainly don't hear about 
about condoms being a part of it. Um, when you could you talk to me about the senior centers that you run? Or is it because I actually I'm also realizing I've seen Sage like maybe March in Pride in Chicago and also Boston. Is that possible? Yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and yep. I and in those cities, are there also centers or is it a service and the community organization that's working out of, say, like a different LGBTQ center? Right. So it depends on the city. So, you know, again, you know, with New York City being our hometown, we have a network of we call them the Sage Centers here in New York City in L.A., uh, we, we have five. Um, in, wow, that's um, amazing. So, yeah. So uh, Midtown, Harlem, uh, Fort Greene, which is a neighborhood in Brooklyn, um, and uh, in the Bronx as well, Staten Island. Um, and in L.A., the L.A. LGBT Center has an incredible array of services for older folks in our community, including a great center. It varies from city to city what it looks like. Um, but but at this point, fortunately, in a growing number of at least larger cities in this country, there is something that looks at least somewhat like what Sage has in New York City and what the LA Center has mm-hmm. in LA. And um, we, as Sage, is a national organization. We work closely with the LA Center and with organizations across the country to help provide uh, support when it's needed. Uh, fortunately, in L.A., the L.A. Center has been doing this work for a long time and they do an amazing job. But there are a lot of cities where the work of a community center or another organization and focusing on older folks in our community is quite new and where there's some real support that is needed to help folks get programs off the ground. We also have um, SAGE partners in communities across the country. Um, We have um, SAGE, a a network of partners and collaborators. And so um, you may well see uh, SAGE contingent marching in in, uh, pride marches in different cities across this, in different cities across the country. Because, you know, ultimately our goal is to is to spread the word, spread the focus. Sage's tagline is we refuse to be invisible. And so much of what we need to do is to raise the visibility of older people, to remind folks that we don't disappear when we turn 50 or 60, right? That many of us are still around when we're 70 and 80 and 90 and 100. And as a community, we have to pay attention to that. Yeah. I mean, so when you say support, when the support that you're giving other organizations, do you mean financial support? It can be that. What it more often is, is what we call, you know, in our jargon at Sage is technical assistance. So you have a community center, say, um, in, um, in Detroit that wants to start a program for LGBTQ plus older adults and doesn't know how to do it, doesn't know how to design it, doesn't know um, what kinds of components it should have. And we can provide advice, assistance, example, templates, et cetera. We do sometimes provide financial support. That's in pretty limited circumstances. We have a couple of programs in particular that focus in there, and in particular focusing in on small grassroots efforts and and, uh, people of color at BIPOC communities and TGMB communities. So those are, we have a special program now that's providing seed money for some kind of small grassroots um, programs and particularly marginalized uh, elder communities. Is that the Rustin Center? 
Uh, it's the um, there's an organization that that until a couple of years ago was actually called Sage Metro Detroit. Oh, wow. And um, and now is um, uh, has a different name because uh, we we just historically we had a network of Sage affiliates in about 30 mm-hmm. cities across the country that carried our name, carried our mission, even though they were legally and financially independent of us. And we just went through a process a couple of years ago of changing our approach. So what those organizations no longer carry our name, but we still have relationships with them in different um, cities. But in Detroit, there has been interesting work going on around queer elders for years. Yes. Um, both Sage Metro Detroit, there's an organization. I'm still stuck with the old name of it because I can never remember the new name. It used to be called Kick um, in Detroit. It's got a different name now, but they've uh, it's an organization that works with black queer folks in Detroit and has paid a lot of attention to older folks for years. You know, and I just before I forget, I want to also mention because I think maybe. So this doesn't exist everywhere, but I, for instance, I've seen it in Los Angeles. Um and that would be like retirement communities that are specifically geared toward older LGBTQ adults. And I feel like that was something that I also, I feel like I like had to drive past a sign or something to know about it. And I think that's something also that we don't really talk about as a community, which is, and this is, you know, you referenced it. I think there's two ways in, you know, one, when you reference the, you know, the fact that Percentage-wise, we might not have kids and grandkids to the same degree that are willing to pitch in. Um, but the other thing is, you know, my grandmother lived in a retirement center for years. She loved it. She, um, my grandfather had moved in there with her and he passed in his early 80s and she lived to 100. So she lived there for 20 wow. years, you know, two decades. And it was really helpful to her because it wasn't, um, it wasn't assisted living. It was a community that she could be part of, you know, she had like yeah, a condo yeah. yeah, and she, you know, could get her hair done and there were like exercise classes. And for her to continue to have a social life, um, she ended her life living with my aunt, but she had a lot of years of independence and it was a great situation for her. That said, it was run by the Catholic church. Um, so, yes. you know, it's complicated. Um, it was part of the campus where there was a convent and a, and a Catholic high school. And that happened to be a place where my, you know, aunt was actually in that convent where she had worked at that school. So it was like a place that my family was very, very familiar with. And my Nana felt comfortable there. She was a Catholic older person. I can't imagine a queer person moving in there and ultimately feeling comfortable, especially, you know, this was, she died 10 years ago. So you know, even in that 10 years, things have really changed. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that, that story you're sharing about your, your grandmother and her experience there is a, really is a perfect illustration of why housing for LGBTQ plus older folks has been created. Because unfortunately, those situations that are so great for so many older people are not great at all. Uh, for our elders in our community. And some of it is about the fact that um, as and, and somebody who was raised Catholic, I come, <laughs> you know, come from a very Catholic family. That's not the place that you described is not a place that I would choose to go um, as, as I'm getting older. So some of it's about the fact that some of these, um, these uh, facilities, these retirement communities 
are, are run by institutions that either are currently hostile to our community or who historically have been hostile to our community. But it's also about the, the social dynamic within many of those settings, because if you look at public opinion research, what it shows is that the older people are, the more likely they are to harbor bias against queer people. Right? So who lives in a retirement community? Old people, right? <laughs> so, so you are surrounded by the folks who are most likely um, wow. to have bias against you, right? So, so often what we hear from folks in our community who move into like a traditional or mainstream retirement housing, elder housing, is that they feel really unwelcome, that often they, they feel a kind of pressure to recloset themselves because mm-hmm. the only way to be treated okay is to be straight or to be perceived as straight, right? So that's why this movement started um, now probably about 15 years ago to build our own housing, to build housing for our own people. And actually it was LA. Um, Triangle Square was the very first such housing development in the country. It was built by, built by an organization called Gay and Lesbian Elder Housing that no longer exists. And the LA Center eventually took it over and then built a second one. Um, and so it's got its start in L.A. And since then, so far, it's concentrated largely in the major cities where you would predict. Right. So Sage has built similar housing in New York City. We have we have similar housing in, in, um, in Chicago and Minneapolis and San Francisco, et cetera. So it's a, it's been a really important movement. At the same time, though, it's worth lifting up that the vast majority of us are not going to live in queer specific elder housing. We'll never be able to build enough of that housing mm-hmm. uh, for our folks. And so a huge part of what Sage does is focusing on the mainstream elder housing, the mainstream elder care, and working with those providers to make them welcoming for our people, because that's right. where most of us are going to get get our get our housing, get our care, get our services. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm also, you know, as we're talking, it's also true that so because my grandparents moved in there together, and if there's pressure to be closeted, <laughs> if one is married, as we now can be, or you know, also has a long term partner, then that then that complicates it as well. If you're, if you're attempting to move into a mainstream housing where folks might be hostile, that is an additional element. Um, and I would imagine that that is also true uh, for folks who enter assisted living, whether they are single or partnered, because in an assisted living situation, not, you know, both partners don't always move in. It, it can be somebody is still living independently and some people and somebody else needs that that assistance yeah so i'd imagine it's also an issue with things like visitation and um yeah. communication with partners it absolutely is i mean that there's this, uh the you know the whole retirement community elder living world is set up to accommodate um traditional straight couples it historically has not been set up at all uh to accommodate our couples and um to the contrary, you know, we have a lot of experience and a lot of stories of, of institutions that are not respecting couples, not respecting visitation rights. I think about we this case in St. Louis a couple of years ago, an older lesbian couple that was applying to get into a um, uh, long-term care retirement community. I uh, was calling their continuing care communities where when you first go in, it's independent living, but you have the option right. of eventually yes. advancing to assisted living yes. or memory care if you need it. 
which is a really attractive model for a lot of folks. Um, this place, ironically, was called Friendship Village. I say ironically based on the fact that they weren't particularly friendly to the lesbian couple that was trying to get in. They were run by a faith-based organization. They wanted they were a married couple. They wanted to come in together. And, and Friendship Village said no. Um, and actually, they said that they would only accept couples who were living in a biblical marriage uh, their language, and that um, since this couple weren't in a biblical oh, marriage, they couldn't go there. And the thing is, yeah. is that, you know, it's it's not like uh, a corner store, right, or a CVS or a 7-Eleven where you could just go find another one on the next corner. Um, you know, elder care is hard to come by. Affordable elder care is hard to come by in many communities. And in many communities, you may have only one or two options, and if that if that provider is an unwelcoming faith based provider, you're you're in rough shape, right, in terms of accessing the care that you care that you need. So that that's and and that's a big part of what we're involved with trying to work on. At Sage, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I know that again, as somebody that was raised Catholic, I um, I find it very troubling that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm glad somebody provides a service. There's that part, but I, I have long felt, you know, it's very troubling from a, um, indoctrination standpoint that the church has been so good at working its way into the school system, the hospital system and elder care among other, I mean, relief organizations, outreach in developing nations. You know, I remember when I, first kind of pulled back and realized, oh my God, the, um, the way this has created disaster, for instance, like AIDS crisis in sub-Saharan Africa that was partially, um, set aflame by, you know, Pope John Paul's stance on condoms. So it's like, we really, I mean, the, the church really, has done a good job of normalizing this kind of infiltration into um, services that we all need, and yeah, it's absolutely really troubling. Absolutely, to me. it's it's really it's really troubling. It can be life threatening in the context of AIDS prevention or in the context of elder care because if elders don't get the care they need, they will you know, they will die. And yeah. um, and, and also in the particular, not to drive too much into the Catholic church, but I can't resist since it's my own, uh, you know. <laughs> they also are own. very in this space. Like this is mm. the kind of space that they, where they spend yes. a lot of time. You know, it's really, yes. it's that idea of like, we're doing the good work for this community that needs it. When that is affiliated with a certain set of beliefs, it's it's really, really, it's a problem. But what were you, it's what were real- we going to say? Yeah. Well, I was just what I was going to lift up is the, you know, the Catholic Church continues to be actively involved in legal efforts to deny care to members of our community and to deny services and support. And I'm thinking in particular about the case that the Catholic Charities in Philadelphia brought to the Supreme Court a couple of years ago. And unfortunately, one, because we have a very conservative Supreme Court where, you know, Catholic Charities in Philadelphia had a contract to place kids in foster care and and refused to place kids with, right, with, with queer uh, with queer parents. Yes. And the city said, hey, we have an anti-discrimination law. If you are not willing to, if you insist on discriminating against LGBTQ people, you can't receive city funds 
to place kids in foster care. And, and Catholic Charities argued, no, it's our legal right. It's our constitutional right to discriminate against these people. And the Supreme Court supported them, right? So, so we have uh, – and, and the Catholic Church is not unique, God knows, in this way. Right. It's, it's just the – it's visible. It's prominent. It happens to be the particular church that, um, that I have a history with. And so yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's really tough. And at the same time – I definitely, there are lots of faith-based providers in the elder care space who are great and who are really welcoming. Um, we, we SAGE runs a national training program called SAGE Care in which we provide training and credentialing, almost like a good housekeeping seal of approval to elder care providers that are committed to treating older folks in our community well. And, and we have faith-based providers who are participating in SAGE Care who are really deeply committed to serving and caring for everybody respectfully, including members of our community. So right. this isn't to paint a broad brush and say that this is true right. of all faith-based providers, but there, but there are significant large faith-based providers that are really problematic when it comes yes. to how they treat members of the LGBTQ community and the Catholic church is one of them. Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I feel like it is one of those things that um, for folks who might be at a distance from that sort of, um, religious affiliation, it, this, I, I find that like sometimes with people, even my age, people can be like, who cares? Like, who cares what the Pope says? Or, you know, it's one guy, he doesn't live here. And so to me, it's this thing of, um, the reminder of how tied into the legal system and, um, and providing, I mean, this is the reason I was like kind of laughing. My dad was adopted through Catholic charities. He was placed Mm. with my Nana and, so when this ruling came down, I was, you know, I was tracking it and he and I had, uh, you know, a really interesting conversation about it. But one thing I will say to the Catholic Church is, is actually you can, sorry, gay people will still be created because even if a gay couple <laughs> can't adopt a child through Catholic charities, uh, that that child can grow up and have a gay child. So like, sorry, we're. You cannot stop us. We no. Will they've tried for cont- they've tried for a long time and it hasn't worked. So no, far. yeah. Good luck putting that tiny boulder against the like giant stream of humanity. Um, but I want to you know go back to uh, talking a little bit more about the services that you provide today. You know, I imagine as I said, the focus in our community has changed. You know, in 1978, very focused on. I'm a, you know, I don't know, white, white folks, because that those were the people that had money to be um, involved in a, in a, in getting our needs met at the forefront, um, the loudest folks. And that, that's true in my childhood and young adulthood as well. You know, this is not like, there wasn't some massive change to me as a community, um, even though BIPOC folks have always been here, even though. Uh, gender nonconforming and trans folks have always been here. Uh, this like inclusion by our community is, you know, relatively new. So I'm wondering if that's also true in Sage's efforts uh, for the community services that are provided. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Both the history and the change in the present. Fortunately, you know, we got our start as an organization and um, and uh, the, the the West Village in New York City, Chelsea, very predominantly white neighborhoods, especially back in that time. But if you look at our services today, 
Uh, three of our five SAGE centers in New York City are in predominantly people of color communities. Um, the two housing developments that we've built in New York City are, are both in communities of color. And, and that's a really important shift, not only in the people that we're serving and supporting, but also more fundamentally in thinking. You know, because when the first uh, queer elder housing was built in this country, it was built in so-called, you know, gayborhoods, right? Um, the edge of the Castro in San Francisco, Boys Town in Chicago, West Hollywood in yeah. L.A., predominantly white areas. And it is true because the housing was affordable. There were numbers of, of elders of color who received housing in those buildings, but they basically had to leave the communities that they were in, right? Like the communities right. where their families, where their friends were, and they had to move um, into these predominantly white neighborhoods in order to get this queer friendly, affordable housing. But we really kind of shifted that model. Um, in the housing that Sage built here in New York City to recognize that people shouldn't have to leave their communities and come to like the white queer neighborhood in order to get welcoming, affordable housing, right? That that housing should be available to them in the communities that they're in. And so that was a significant part of the consideration of why um, we why we built the first development in Fort Greene, which is an historically black neighborhood here in New York City, and why we built our second development in New York City in the Bronx at Cochona Park, which is a predominantly Latino X, a Latinx neighborhood, right? So, um, so there's been a whole necessary mind shift, and also um, a, a mind shift that focuses on the needs. And, and, and the right to access of, of TGMB folks in our community, of trans folks in our community, who historically, you know, were just not recognized and, and, and not supported in, in so many of our community's organizations. And that's really changed a lot. You know, so we have uh, great uh, programs in particular for older trans women, all kinds of really interesting um, uh, activities and programs that focus on on trans folks and other uh, other communities as well that are particularly challenged, you know. So uh, older veterans, like queer veterans, is something that we've had quite a bit of focus on because it turns out, you know, for a lot of folks getting older as veterans, many folks, like many older Americans, live close to the line financially. Veterans benefits can really make a difference. But we have generations of people in our community who receive dishonorable discharges from the military um, because if it was discovered that they were queer, they were kicked out, right? Not eligible for veterans benefits. And so people who oh are living God. close to the line where those be- where those benefits would make a world of difference can't get them. And Wait, so, so we- can I ask you a question about that? Yeah, yeah. That has not, there's never been, that's not ever been addressed. I mean, because that is not, that's not, I'm, this is, I can't believe this is a limit to my, like knowledge here, but, but that's not a thing anymore. It's not a thing that people are no longer, you know, kicked out of the military for being queer, but there is no, there is no law that's been passed that erases the, the dishonorable discharge. There's never been like a, an ex post facto, like a, like a, oh my God. I, you you have to go. That is so wild. I mean, I, I suppose I've never thought about that. Yeah, it's and so what happens is in certain states, um, uh, New York is one of them. I think California is one as well. There's been legislation passed that will 
that makes it easier for a veteran on an individual basis to go through a process to get their individual less than honorable discharge reversed. But that requires, you know, support, legal assistance, knowing you have the right to do that, right? But no laws have been passed to say anybody who was discharged from the military um, for because they're queer um, has all of that erased. And so, um, yeah, and and, and huge numbers of people in our community um, served in the military. Yeah. Um, And right. And And it's not like veterans, it's not like we are killing it in terms of our care for veterans in this country anyway. So to be even further distanced from access to that is, that is like, I, that is so sad to me. Wow. That is really heartbreaking. So it's another example of a, of a particular part of our community, an older community that, that, that really needs attention. Right. So, so, so there's been a lot of evolution over time and focusing in on the folks in our community who are most challenged, um, who face the, uh, the, the uh, you know, the greatest levels of discrimination. You know, black and brown people, we, black and brown people are dealing with racism on top of homophobia and transphobia. Right. So multiple layers um, of discrimination, older folks living with disabilities. So really looking at resources are not limited. I mean, I'm not limitless. And so the resources need to be concentrated with the folks who need them the most. You know, this is also, I guess I'm also thinking about, um, and this is something that I have experienced to a degree, but it is not, it's certainly not the same degree. Um, You know, something that happens every time I go to the doctor. Um, Well, especially at the emergency room, um, the times I've ended up there, but um, you know, other it's, there is like a limit to, um, I have experienced so much, for instance, like a pregnancy test, uh, I've been pregnancy tested, um, a zillion times. And you know what, I guess, I guess they like, especially in like an emergency room setting, I guess they should. I mean, I'm sure people, um, attempt to cover up behavior for, you know, a bunch of reasons. But I will say just as somebody who's never had um, sex that was open to procreation, it is a very odd experience to tell that to a provider and be pregnancy tested anyway. Or another example of this is, again, um, never having sex with somebody who has a penis, going into the gynecologist. I just went this week and I have never been tested for or to my knowledge, I know they've sometimes run like a full STI panel. So I'm sure as a part of that, um, perhaps in my life I've been tested for HPV, but specifically test. This is like right now going literally like last week, my gynecologist was like, I, you know, we need to specifically test you for HPV. And I had to ask him, wait, can I, can I ask you if this is something that, um, cause I had been told previously that, my, the, I mean, this is so wild. It's like, we're just in the, we're like just wandering in the desert. Yes. I've been told previously <laughs> that this is something I likely wouldn't have contracted, even though I know that like percentage wise, most Americans have been exposed. It's like one of those STIs where like, we all have it. I, even that I've been told like, oh, you don't have to worry about that. And I, you know, I asked my um, gynecologist who happens to be a gay man, like, wait, is this something that I probably have just like everybody else. And he was like, 
Yeah. You know, and I, so again, like a limit to understanding the times I've been treated in a medical setting um, as if I don't have knowledge of my own body or then on the other side, not getting the correct information. And I'm also thinking about folks who, you know, especially because of age, it's like gender affirming care, access to gender affirming care was so different. So it might be somebody who um, their presentation, their body is something that is, uh, that a doctor is not super familiar with or like in an assisted living situation that folks are not super familiar with. I'm wondering if you provide education in that area or if that's something that um, comes up right now in conversation around elder care. It, it absolutely comes up over and over again. And we do work in those areas. So, I mean, what you're describing, right, th- there's two layers here. One is like, what kind of healthcare am I getting and how does it align with who I am <laughs> yeah, 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 right? Right. Am I, and, and, and how I live my life? And also what kind of message does this clueless approach to healthcare deliver to people? Right. And the message delivers often is we don't have you in mind when we're creating our healthcare protocols, right. et cetera. And so what right. that means is this is the reason why, you know, we do survey research uh, at SAGE among older folks in our community to understand people's experiences and perspectives, because that's how we help address them. Right. And one of the things we see is that, is that well over 30% of older members of our community are not out to the healthcare providers. Well, why are they not out to the healthcare providers? Because the message that is that they have received over and over again is that these folks are not equipped to deal with my needs. Maybe these folks aren't equipped to deal with my needs because they don't care. Or maybe it's worse that they don't care. Maybe they actually are, you know, have discriminatory feelings against me, right? So what that leads to is a lot of people hiding who they are with their healthcare providers, which then has a lot of potential negative effects on healthcare over the course of life or avoiding healthcare altogether and avoiding healthcare providers altogether. And what we see because we're working with old people is that we're working with large numbers of people who have avoided healthcare. And so all kinds of medical issues accumulate that could have been addressed if there had been consistent healthcare over time. So that's the reality for, for, for queer people in general. But certainly for trans folks, it's, it's even that much more complicated. And yes. the intersection between being trans and needing to go into a form of elder care where you do not control who accesses your body, Right where other people are dressing you, where other yes. people are bathing you, and and for for folks who have basically that bodily autonomy and that bodily control has been key, right? Has been just key to being able to live a like a, a respectful life where people respect you because you control who knows your knows your information and knows your story and knows your experience. That all changes um, in in elder care. Uh, as it as it advances, and so we do a lot of work with. Um, I mentioned earlier we have a, a national training program called Sage Care. We have a, a specific training curriculum that is for elder care providers about how to work effectively and respectfully with uh, with transgender older folks. And we do a lot of training of long term care providers, healthcare providers around. Um, Treat, working with LGBTQ older folks in general um, and with trans elders more uh, more specifically. And what we find in most cases with the providers that we work with, it's not a, 
it really is, a, 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 it's a lack of understanding and knowledge and information. Um, I, I used the word clueless a little glibly earlier, but it's, it, it's, not, it's not necessarily because they don't want to do a good job. It's because they have no idea how to do a good job. They don't have the information that they need to do a good job. And in our experience with most providers, if they get the training they need, if they get the information they need, then the quality of care and the, respect, the respectfulness of the care will improve substantially. Right. to tell this to younger listeners, but my experience has been, I mean, it's very, um, I was very close with my grandparents and watched all the different types of care that they needed. And, you know, I think for folks who might be thinking to themselves like, oh, well, I'm gonna, like, first of all, it's never gonna happen to me (laughs) because I'm so young. I'm not thinking about it. Or like, well, I'm gonna live with family, these kinds of things. It's like, even if that's true, um, you know, hospitalizations are also, it's not, it's not just folks who end up in like longer care facilities because hospitalizations become more common for things like, you know, heart issues, lung issues, like just the, the, even those short term hospitalizations. And then, you know, being released to a rehab facility because you're not quite ready to go home. Um, and you're not quite, you know, quite qualified to continue to have a hospital bed. And so just thinking about all the different places that something like that might come up and, you know, bodily autonomy, who gets to visit all those different things. And, so anyway, I'm just trying to tell everybody who's listening. I'm so sorry. <laughs> this is going to affect us all. <laughs> this is what's a, yeah, you know, and, yeah. And, and and the thing is, is is these are the kinds of things that historically, like traditional family structures, adult children, um, were, were there to help, right? Um, yeah. We're there to provide that kind of support. And the reality is for a lot of folks we work with, a lot of older queer people, that's just not there. Right. Mm. It's just not there. There, there, um, you know, there isn't an adult son or adult daughter to pitch in and help out in these in these really difficult moments, these transition moments when more care is needed. Or maybe there is somebody there, um, but they're not somebody that's going to support you in the way um, that they need support. And that's particularly true for queer older people. But it's also becoming increasingly true for older Americans in general. More older Americans are choosing not to have kids or don't have kids. Right. Oh, there's also um, people's the way people think about how we support our family members has changed. You know, I come from a big Catholic, Irish Catholic family when my grandmother um, was getting older. I mean, she was surrounded by like an army yeah, yeah, of yeah, people, right. like more people than she wanted sometimes, <laughs> but like, you know, but there was no oh question that like whatever her gap in care might be, gap in housing, there were going to be multiple people there to address that and address that in a loving, caring way. That's just not true um, for many folks in our community. And, you know, sometimes when people ask me, like, what does SAGE do when it comes to services? The shorthand I use is we do the same things that that you would do um, if your mom or dad was elderly and declining and they needed help. Um, that's what we do. We wow. we do that because there isn't somebody else there to do that. Can I ask a really? I mean, this is. Do, do you? I'm sure you you must know the discrepancy in like age of mortality for our community versus like the national average. Is that something that you, that you all know? Like 
what I I wish we knew that. Okay. I wish we knew that. The reason we don't know that is because historically the research that is done on mortality doesn't have any screen um, for sexual orientation and gender oh God, identity. So they don't collect the true. data and therefore there's oh, no right, right. Because, because yeah. again, according to researchers historically, we didn't exist or we didn't matter. Right, so right, nobody right. bothered to ask those questions. Um, yeah, but I think what we... I've had that experience too. I will say that's true also in... Um, in uh, oh my god, I'm so tired that I'm. What is the <laughs> in fertility care? Mm-hmm. Which I was shocked to find out. You know, I when I I had an experience of um, having an egg retrieval. I went in. They were like, "This works in this percentage of time." But that being said, we have no stats for what is true for people where it's not. You know, it's it's much more common. It's somebody. It's a it's a straight couple that has tried to have kids and now is getting assistance. And I was like, what? Like, what? Like, you yeah. don't even know how frequently this will work? And they were like, no, we have no idea. Yeah. Like, we yeah. know the percentages for a totally different situation. But yeah. because in that situation, there was a problem. Folks were coming in because there was a problem. That's not why I was going in. So when there, when for our community, people are going in with there's a there's not an issue they're trying to address except for just the you know sort of barrier that uh biology provides but not because of uh a bunch of tries and even that i was like i don't know i I was shocked i didn't well i mean the thing is where, where we do have statistics and data um are things like we know that that we're more likely the queer people are more likely to age in poverty because of the the financial impact of a lifetime of discrimination of various sorts. We know that we're more likely to age isolated, dealing with social isolation for a variety of reasons. We know that we're that there we're more likely to age with with chronic health conditions. So there is data on all of those things, and all of those things for everybody else correlates to greater health problems and greater and 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 um, likelihood of earlier. Uh, death and mortality. So in all likelihood, if there was data on this, um, it would indicate um, that we do, um, that we do die younger than other folks. And um, um, because the reality is these kinds of experiences that we have as we, as we live as queer people and as we age as queer people, they, they impact physical health, they impact emotional health. There's just no way around that, right? Um, and so that's a lot of what we have to focus on is dealing with the underlying problems. And then while we're doing that, simultaneously trying to deal with the emotional health issues and the physical health issues that are consequences of the underlying problems. Whew. Well, um, here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to ask you one more question. But first, before that, I want to I just want to really thank you for um, the work that you're doing. And I think this is I mean, obviously, this is not just my personal opinion. Like, what a necessary organization. I'm so glad you were able to talk about it um, with such fluency today. And I really think that folks who are listening, like, this is, I mean, I've never had this kind of conversation on this podcast. And I feel like I've talked about, like, almost everything. So, um, Mm -hmm. again, that actually really indicates the need for both your organization and your ability to talk about it. So, you know, easily and, and so thoroughly. So thank you for that. And thanks Absolutely. for being on the show. Um, and before I send you back into your day, I just want to ask you the question I ask everybody, which is to shout out a queero 
And that's a person, place, or thing that made you feel like you can do and be who you are today. Um, do you mm. have a queero to shout out? Yeah, yeah. I- I'm going to say Angela Davis. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, and and actually, for all kinds of reasons, but 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 maybe the biggest reason is that you know we talked a lot about difficult stuff, tough stuff. It's hard getting older as a queer person, but there's so much resiliency and power and strength among older folks in our community. And my God, like Angela Davis personifies that in so, so, so many ways, you know, the power in the face of challenge and to watch her and like, watch how, like watch her as this beautiful, like older woman um, leader and, and, and spokesperson. I, yeah, she's an idol for me. Oh, that's amazing. Well, thank you again, Michael. Thanks for being on the show. And uh, it was really nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you too. Really good talking with you. Maximum Fun. A worker-owned network. Of artist-owned shows. Supported. Directly. By you.